guys. Welcome to Relatable. Happy Friday. Today, I am talking to Dr. Vodi Bakum. I am so excited about this, and I know a lot of you are too. He has been so helpful in helping me shape my biblical worldview, and his ministry has been so influential over thousands and thousands of people, and he has special insight into social justice theology and how it is damaging the evangelical church today and the particular ways that it is incongruent with the biblical worldview. So I am so excited to talk to him, to hear about his story and his testimony, how he came to know the Lord and how the Lord has led him down this journey of having uh, so much influence. And then we will talk uh, especially and particularly about um, the gospel and why it is better than the critical theory, theology, and philosophy that is being uh, shoved in our faces today. So without further ado, here is Dr. Vodi Bakum. Dr. Bakum, thank you so much for joining me. It's my pleasure. I'm glad to be here. I'm glad we finally worked this out. Yes, me too. I think most people listening to this and watching know exactly who you are. They have watched your videos, especially lately. But can you tell everyone who you are and what you do, just in case there are some people who don't know? Yeah, well, I'm I'm Vody Bauckham. I am. I, I mean, I wear a lot of hats. I've been preaching for three decades now, and have served the church in a number of capacities as pastor and itinerant preacher and. Um, five years ago, we moved to Lusaka, Zambia. I was serving in Houston, Texas, where we planted a church there um, in, in spring in, in North Houston. And um, the Lord called us to Zambia five years ago to come and help start the African Christian University here, uh, which was started by the Reformed Baptist uh, Churches of Zambia. And um, so, yeah, we've been here for the last five years, I'm married to Bridget um, for 31 years. We have nine children, seven sons and two daughters. And we have now two grandsons. Um, and seven of our children are actually here. They're st- still at home. They're still here with us. Um, so yeah, that that's who I am. And you were born and raised in Los Angeles. Were you raised in a Christian home? No. Um, my I was raised by a single mother, a single teenage Buddhist mother. Um, my... my parents um, met and had me when they were in high school, um, I got got married because that's kind of what you did. You know, I was born in 1969, right. um, but they s- didn't stay married. And so my mother raised me um, as a single mother. Um, she grew up in church, but um, eventually left that behind and went into Buddhism and um, a lot of people are shocked to hear that, but there was a, 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 a vibrant black Buddhist scene in Los Angeles huh. during that time. It was kind of the whole age of Aquarius type thing, you know, and Eastern mysticism was big. Yeah, right. Eastern mysticism was big and all of the, 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 the free love culture and the drug culture and the psychedelic culture and Buddhism just really was on the rise at that time. And so she didn't like how political... Um, in her understanding, the black church had become. Hmm. Um, and she didn't want to be part of the black power movement. And generally, those were the, kind of the two streams. You know, you got Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. Um, and right. and so my, fa- my father was more of a kind of Malcolm X, you know, type uh, person. And, you know, some of the people around were more of the, you know, nonviolent, you know, Martin Luther King, you know, political means type people. But she was looking for something more transcendent. Um, and so she became a, a Buddhist and, you know, that I didn't grow up going to church. I didn't grow up around Christians or Christianity. I never heard the gospel really till I got to university. Hmm. Well, that's what I was about to ask. How did you hear the gospel and how did you become a Christian? I mean, I know that could be a, a an entire conversation in itself, but just kind of briefly, how did that happen? Yeah, well, I, um, I went to high school in San Antonio, and you know, in 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 Texas, um, you know, football is everything. Right. Um, and and not only that, but there's the Fellowship of Christian Athletes is this really big, mm-hmm. you know, deal. And so in in Texas high school football, when I was playing there, there were three things that you did, and all of these three things had to do with the coach getting as much time with you as as legally 
possible, right? Um, the state has all these rules about how much time you can practice, how much time you can, you know, spend, you know, in meetings and all this other kind of stuff. And so you played football and then you ran track because that was the way for you to get in shape and get bigger, stronger, faster, you know, while you were preparing for football the next season. And you participated in FCA, um, which, again, I didn't mean a whole lot for me other than, um, you know, there there's an, another group, you know, on, on, on campus that I was adjacent to. And so when I went off to play football in college, it was, you know, kind of a, a big buzz, you know, uh, because I, I was, you know, considered a little bit of a big deal. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a guy on campus who was working in um, Campus Crusade, saw in my bio, and it's always interesting when you first go to college as a college athlete, you know, it's not a whole lot to put in your bio. You've never played a game in college, right? You got to, so you just throw everything in there. And so he saw on there that I was affiliated with the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. I had no idea that this didn't mean anything to me and mm-hmm. came and talked to me about the possibility of starting a Bible study with the, the football players, realized in a couple of minutes that I didn't know Jesus from the man in the moon right. and basically spent the next three weeks um, talking to me about Christianity, about the gospel. I had a lot of questions. Um, I didn't really understand a lot of things. He tried to use this sort of uh, four spiritual laws, you know, with me. But I, there were so many assumptions even in that mm. that he needed to back up, you know. And so mm-hmm. we spent we spent about three weeks together. Uh, his name was Steve Morgan. Uh, you know, we still stay in contact to this day. But one day Steve came to meet with me. It was Friday, November 13th, 1987. And I realized I didn't have any more questions and I, I got it. And so I laid down on wow. the floor in the locker room while I was waiting for him. And I just prayed. I didn't even know what to pray. I was like, God, you know, the thing you did for Steve that he's been telling me you want to do for me now's good. Um, wow. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. And, and just sort of never looked back. Wow. That is awesome. And you went to seminary, you have several degrees. So how did that happen? Did you know immediately that you wanted to pursue this professionally or, or what was that journey like? No, not at all. Um, I, I, I was, you know, as we, as, as we say, you know, I was, I was on fire for the Lord. Right. Um, I was excited about this and that excitement came from a number of sources. Um, you know, when Steve came into the locker room and he was late, I don't know why he was late that day. Um, and he would bring me material. I would ask him questions and he would answer my question. Or if he didn't have an answer, he would go get material to help answer my questions. And, you know, I guess he was late getting some stuff together for us to look through or read through together. And he came and I'm just bawling. Mm. And he asked me, you know, what's wrong? And I'm telling him what's going on. He's man, that's good news. And I'm still just bawling. And he says, but what's wrong? And I just said to him, you know, I had a, a, a cousin named Jamal. Jamal and I were about six months apart in age. I was six months older than him. And when I got old enough to find a little trouble in South Central LA, um, or for trouble to find me, uh, my mother shipped me out. And I I moved from Los Angeles to Buford, South Carolina, where I went to live with her oldest brother, my uncle, who's a retired drill instructor in the Marine Corps. Hmm. And I got out of trouble. Um, you know, very, very quickly. (laughs) And it was amazing. Just not only having a man in the home, but having GI Joe um, in the home, it was just, it it was incredible. And he had had retired after 22 years in the Marine Corps. And anyway, Jamal didn't leave South Central. Jamal started selling drugs. And eventually Jamal was shot and killed. Mm. And I had gone to Jamal's funeral the year before I went to college. And so Steve comes to the locker room. I'm sitting there bawling. He's asking me what's wrong. And I said, I should be able to pick up the phone right now and call my cousin. But I can't because he's dead. And and if this is true, and I believe it is, then I I don't think I'll ever see him again. Mm. And so Steve did two things. Number one, he sat there and he cried with me. And number two, he asked me if there was anybody else that I needed to call. And so I started calling people. I started calling family and friends and, you know, and, and, and just started evangelizing, sharing, mm-hmm. sharing my faith. And eventually started talking about that on campus. Um, 
eventually I joined the Fellowship of Christian Athletes at, at Rice University and, you know, really had my first preaching opportunity through that group. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I had my first preaching opportunity at this group of meetings that we were doing at some high schools, um, I, I just, I, I didn't know what to say other than I think I found what I was supposed to do. And right. uh, I, went, I went and told the pastor of the church that I was attending at the time. And, you know, it's this joke about, you know, black church experience versus white church experience, you know, and white church experience, you go tell your pastor, I think I'm called to preach. And he says, okay, great. We'll sign you up for seminary. Um, for me, I went and told my pastor, I think I'm called to preach. And he looked at the calendar and said, third Sunday of next month, we'll all find out. Oh my gosh. Uh, and, so, <laughs> and so, you know, that was, that, that was it, you know, sort of a baptism by fire. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. And so you ended up at Oxford several years later, correct? Yeah. Yeah, I did. Um, so I, I eventually, I, I left Rice my senior year. Um, nobody told me that you're not supposed to transfer in your senior year, but uh, I started preaching when I was a junior and, you know, here I am, a, you know, football player, you know, this future NFL prospect and I start preaching and, you know, in Texas, what that means is you're going to get invited to go speak at all kind of, you know, events all over the place. And that's what was happening. But again, I was very young in the faith. I didn't know much at all, had just begun to, you know, read the Bible and understand the Bible. Um, and, you know, here I was, because when I preached at my church, then they licensed me, right? So now I'm a licensed Baptist minister, which again, whatever, <laughs> whatever that meant. And so I'm getting all these invitations, but I don't know anything. And so um, I, 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 I was just convicted. I, I need to know what I'm talking about. And uh, so I looked into, you know, transferring, finding some place where I could go and study. And providentially, the Lord sort of hemmed me in where I needed to stay in Houston. You know, my wife, Bridget, and I, we married the summer between my sophomore and junior year. And oh, wow. yeah, yeah, we, we met January 21st and married June 30th. Um, oh, my, my wow, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then we had our first child 10 months later. Oh my goodness! Um, yeah, we we were we were efficient. Um, <laughs> so Bridget was pregnant. Um, she was student teaching. She had to stop student teaching because of some preterm labor issues. So she couldn't leave Houston. So I'm like, okay, I need to start preparing. Where do I go? I'm riding around Houston one day, and I see Houston Baptist University. Never heard of it before. I go and talk to some people there and talk about what's happening with me and what I want to do. And, and, um, long story short, I end up transferring, um, my senior year to Houston Baptist university. And I, I did, I, I was Houston Baptist for 14 months. I took 46 credit hours in 14 months at HBU and, you know, being married and a new father. And then I went immediately from there to Southwestern seminary. Um, and then I went and did, um, a doctor of ministry degree at Southeastern seminary and I felt like two things. One, my 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 credentials were too Baptist, um, and then two, I had some other you know personal things that I wanted to do. So I got permission to do the last year of my doctor of ministry degree as the first year of a PhD or a DPhil, and they call it in Oxford, of the DPhil at Oxford. I got special permission from the president, uh, Paige Patterson, to to go and do that. So we sold our home. We moved. To England and um, and and spent a year there at Oxford. Um, while we were there, Bridget became um, very ill. Um, mm. We almost lost her that year, and we ended up moving back um, again. By God's grace, I was able to finish the first doctoral degree, but didn't finish the second one. And uh, but you know that that was that was our little foray into uh, academic life in in the UK. Um, Wow. Oxford was interesting, um, you know, the, where people get you know, excited when you talk about studying at Oxford, but it, it was an ordeal. It, it was hard. Um, the best way I could describe it is, again, it was a theological, um, you know, education. But the best way I could describe it is that the people that I was studying with there and learning from there, they believed little and practiced less. Um, and mm-hmm. it was it was rough being in that environment. 
but I, I praise God for it because it really helped prepare me for the ministry that he called me to. You know. Amen. And you have had uh, a, a long ministry at this point, at least um, it, it seems that way from what I know. We were listening to you when I uh, when you were on Focus on the Family many years back when I was growing up. That's a program that my parents listened to often in the car when we were going to school. You've written several books. But recently, a lot of people who are, are my age who maybe didn't know who you were before, didn't uh, listen to you before, even though you've been around for so long, they have now watched your videos on things like cultural Marxism, on ethnic Gnosticism, on social justice, and they have gained a lot of insight from you and your sermons and your interviews on on these topics have really opened a lot of people's eyes into these dangerous and insidious forms of theology that are seeping into the evangelical church. How did you start talking about these subjects and in what made you realize, okay, these things are a threat and I need to start discussing them? So, you know, it's really interesting and I'm glad we, we segued into it this way because a lot of people, um, don't really understand um, why I deal with these things from this perspective. Mm -hmm. Some people will say, you know, I'm trying to curry favor with white people. Some people will say I'm insensitive. Some people will say I don't understand blackness or black, the black struggle or, 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 or whatever, you know? Um, but here's the deal. My first book was published in 2004. The title of the book was the ever loving truth. Can faith thrive in a post-Christian culture? Mm -hmm. So here I am at Oxford, you know, to around, you know, 99, 2000, and I'm working on um, my, my dissertation, a critical analysis of the history and theology of the nation of Islam, right? Um, the, the black Muslim movement, Malcolm X and, you know, and these guys and Elijah Muhammad and, and, and so on and so forth. And, and I'm there at Oxford and I'm running into this pernicious influence of liberalism and postmodernism, mm. and I'm I'm seeing this stuff, and so I I just really begin to be wary of these threats, um, this this threat of 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 post Christian culture, of the these these sort of influences, and so I started. Um, you know, looking into things like Foucault and Derrida and, you know, you know, all, all of this sort of stuff. And also, mm -hmm. you know, ideas of inclusivism and all these, all these liberal ideas, right. That are, that are coming to the church. And eventually I start reading about people like, you know, again, not just Marx and, and, and Hegel and people like this, you know, the sort of, sort of the classical Marxist stream, but also Antonio Gramsci and the Frankfurt school. Um, and this sort of this sort of new stream of of cultural Marxism and critical theory and so on and so forth. And so I've been talking about this stuff for nearly two decades now. Mm -hmm. And it's it's and I've been saying for nearly two decades now that this stuff is dangerous and that its foundations are are creeping in and and will have devastating effects. And so this is kind of how I came to this and the way I described it to someone, you know, cause people have said things like, well, uh, well you talk about this, but then you don't talk about that. Or you talk about this, but then you don't mention, you know, these justice issues or this or that or the other. And th what I say to them is I've been standing on this wall for almost two decades, mm -hmm. right? I'm not saying that there are no other walls to stand on. Mm -hmm. But this this one's mine. Right. This is this is the wall that I've been standing on. And by the way, the enemy that I've been saying for two decades is trying to come over this wall. Well, well, they're over the wall now. Mm -hmm. And so this is definitely not the time when I'm going to abandon this wall. Right. Um, so it's interesting. The other interesting thing is, so I wrote that was my first book in 2004. And then I wrote a trilogy of books. Um, Family Driven Faith, Family Shepherds, What He Must Be If He Wants to Marry My Daughter. Mm -hmm. And these books, really, I put in the category of applied apologetics, an mm -hmm. apologetic for biblical manhood and the importance of, of, of the family and family discipleship. I've been pushing home education, 
um, and home, you know, family discipleship for a long time. The interesting intersection between these things is this: uh, according to critical theory, um, you know, th- there are there are a lot of forms. Racism takes a lot of forms. It is inherently structural, and it takes a lot of forms. And one of the forms, you know, Robin D'Angelo is famous for this. She calls it aversive racism. Right. And she gives a list of things that qualify as aversive racism. And one of the things that qualifies is attributing disparities between majority and minority or between oppressors and oppressed. If you Mm -hmm. attribute those disparities to anything other than racism, that is aversive racism. Right. And so one of the things that people, you know, are harping on is, you know, people who are talking about, um, you know, fatherlessness and, um, you know, abortion and, you know, these sorts of things and, and, and educational issues and stuff within uh, minority communities, the immediate accusation is you're victim blaming mm. and you're perpetuating white privilege and white supremacy because you are attributing disparities to something other than racism and saying that people can and should do better, right? This is just not allowed. Right. And so inter- interestingly enough, so here's, here's, look at my publishing record and the stuff that I've written, and people are using the things that I've been writing. By the way, I grew up without a father. Mm-hmm. I grew up in a community. I, I can remember. I didn't know people who had fathers, mm-hmm. right? It just, it, just, it just didn't happen. It just did not compute that you had a mother and a father in your home. And so I experience these devastating effects. I see these devastating effects. And I start writing about these things because of the devastating effects that I've seen. And ironically, because I put the emphasis on that syllable, <laughs> people <laughs> say that I've actually internalized racism. Mm-hmm. And, and so it, it's just, it's just, it's pernicious. It's, in, it's incredibly pernicious. Right. Tell me, well, again, we could spend hours just on this topic, but social justice, I think, well, you can tell me if you think that it is the umbrella under which things like ethnic Gnosticism and cultural Marxism exist, or maybe you feel that Marxism is the umbrella under which social justice and ethnic Gnosticism exists, or maybe you feel like critical theory is the umbrella. So whatever you feel like is the umbrella, um, if you could describe what that is. I think critical theory is the umbrella. And I really, I think you had Neil Shinvi on a while back. Yes, I did. Um, and I love uh, Shinvi. I love Shinvi's work. One of the things that I've really gleaned from him is how uh, counterproductive it can be to talk about cultural Marxism. Um, one, because people kind of get confused because, you know, there, there's a couple of different strains and, and, of it. And secondly, because it does exactly what social justice does, but in the opposite direction. And so I've said for a long time that the problem with the idea of social justice is that it frames the conversation in such a way that if you disagree with it, you are not just wrong but you're ungodly because you're against justice, right? Um, And so it really shuts down the possibility of any pushback. Well, I think the same thing happens when we start talking about cultural Marxism and, you know, nobody wants to be a Marxist. And when I, when I talk about cultural Marxism, again, I've been talking about this for decades now and mm-hmm. not just sort of pointing the finger and saying, ah, you're a cultural Marxist and, you know, this and that and the other and putting people outside the camp. Um, but I, I, I think talking about critical theory, um, which really comes from the, the cultural Marxists and especially the, the, uh, the, the, the neo-Marxist and the Frankfurt School, uh, I, think, I think doing that helps people understand that, that this is a worldview. And because... You know, when you hear cultural Marxism, we know what Marxism is and everybody's like, no, you know, I'm not a Marxist. So whatever you're saying, you know, I'm not that. I think when you start talking about critical theory and presenting critical theory as a worldview, which it actually is, I I, I think it sort of opens up an avenue for people to understand what's going on and why it's important to address it from a worldview perspective. Right. And 
basically in very simple terms, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but all of these terms have to do with seeing the world as the oppressed versus the oppressor. Hegemonic power is basically how you um, classify people according to their group identity. That is how you understand truth. That's how you understand morality. That's how you understand economics and politics is the oppressed versus the oppressor and defining equity as redistributing power from the perceived oppressor to the perceived oppressed oppressed, whether or not that oppression is actual, whether or not that oppression is individual, but simply according to group identity, categorizing people as oppressed versus oppressor, and then trying to get power from the so-called oppressor and giving it to the oppressed by whatever means possible. Would you say that that is an apt description of kind of all of these things in a way? Yeah, I think I think that's, that, that's, that's a very good description of it. It's really about power dynamics. I mean, that 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 is the issue, that it, everything comes down to power dynamics and people who have power versus people who don't. Um, and, and there's a whole worldview, um, and I would say a whole quasi-religion, a, a cult, if you will, mm-hmm. that's built around these terminologies that are designed to explain um, these power dynamics. Um, but yeah, that's what it's all. That's what it's all about, and it does. Th- this comes from, you know, Hegel, uh, who was Marx's mentor, and, and Marx. Um, you know, these things. These things flow from that. And a lot of people just sort of jump on Marx, but you got to understand when Marx is writing. You know, when he's writing, mm-hmm. coming out of the feudal era, era and into the industrial era, and early industrialism wasn't pretty. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, these big factories and, you know, child labor and all this, you know, it it just, it just, it it wasn't pretty. Um, and so people have, people are are trying to explain, you know, um, how, how this thing, um, works. Mm -hmm. And so that idea, you know, coming from, even from the feudal era where there are the haves and the have nots and then using that as a framework to understand this new industrial era as well. Um, it, it, it really is a, a lens and it's a set of worldview assumptions that, that sees everything from that perspective um, and, and can only see things from that perspective. And views the act of not seeing things from that perspective as a byproduct of the oppression of that perspective. Right. Right. And that is why, as you said earlier, that when you don't ascribe to the tenets of, for example, critical theory, people accuse you of internalized white supremacy or internalized oppression. And so it really is a way... I mean, it, it's really an epistemology. It's it's a way to understand knowledge and to understand truth altogether. And it challenges the the very idea of objective reality. I know you talked about on Glenn Beck's program that document that was put out by the Modern Museum of African American History and Culture that that associated uh, whiteness with rational thinking and yes. objectivity, the scientific method, right? <laughs> scientific and method. I think. We so, can laugh so let's, at that. So let's look at yeah, that. Yeah, go let's ahead. Look at that go ahead. So let's look at that in light of what's happening right now. So exactly. Black, yeah. I, Black Lives Matter is built on this narrative. And again, I'm here in Zambia, and it's it's just horrible being an expat living outside of the United States right now, seeing the picture that's being painted of America. And the narrative is that police officers are hunting and killing Black men. Right? Do people that, believe that where you are, that that's happening yes. in America? Yes, they do. Yes, they do. That people that the police officers are just, you know, hunting and killing black men. And and then you look at the numbers, and the numbers just do not bear that out. And, and then they go, well, okay, but you know, that's that's the numbers, but you know, aren't you know black people disproportionately more likely to be shot? No, actually, the research demonstrates to us now that. No, it's not. We're not being disproportionately targeted, you know, being killed by the police. Then they go, okay, yes, but these particular occurrences, and there have been a couple of articles that have been just awesome. Um, One by 
Hughes and one by McWhorter, where they have basically mapped out how every one of you know these names that we know, right? Philando Castile, um, you know George Floyd, um, you know Tamir Rice, many all of these, uh, all of these, every one of them has happened to a white person usually multiple times. Right. And so people know George Floyd's name, but they don't know Tony Tempa's name. Very similar to George Floyd, except they had their knee on his back for 14 minutes instead of, you know, under nine minutes. And they mm-hmm. mocked him while he died. Right. So you know, all of these points of the narrative, right, um, are, they're, they're just not true. But when you start going to the data mm-hmm. to try to demonstrate this, Ah, guess what? Now you're using the scientific method, right? Mm -hmm. Now you're using quantitative analysis. And that, by the way, is white. Right. And so now it's like, wait a minute. You have a narrative that's not true. We can demonstrate that the narrative is not true. But when I use quantitative analysis to demonstrate that the narrative is not true, your argument is that the way I'm disproving your narrative is actually part of the oppression that your narrative is trying to teach. Right. And so what's the answer? The answer is you have to listen to black voices. Mm. You have to listen to black people's stories. But only certain, certain black voices. They would not recommend your black voice. No, 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 no. So they would say that I'm not a black voice. I'm a black body, but not a black voice. The only black voices are the black voices that agree with critical theory. And Robin D'Angelo. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, Robin D'Angelo is the queen of critical theory, you know? Right. And so, the, you, you know, the assumption, there's a worldview assumption that is the starting point. The mm-hmm. starting point is critical theory. And so critical theory sets the table as to what is true versus what is not true. This is the worldview. This is the meta-narrative, right? For us, it's creation, fall, redemption, consummation. For them, it's whiteness, white privilege, white supremacy, um, and then white fragility, you know? Right. Um, And so, you know, again, even you, you, we can't even, people say, well, we need to, we need to have the discussion. Well, I mean, you know, I was born in 1969, all we've been doing my entire life is talking about race. Mm-hmm. What do you mean we need to have the discussion? We've never yeah. stopped having the discussion about race. Right. And the whole idea there is another idea that comes from critical, critical theory. And that is that this truth comes from narrative. This truth comes from the voice of the oppressed because the oppressed, and this goes all the way back to Hegel, right? The oppressed by virtue of their oppression have access to a knowledge and understanding Mm -hmm. above and outside of the hegemony that those who are inside of the hegemony don't have. Mm -hmm. And so this is where I came up with the term ethnic Gnosticism, right? Um, It is a a form of Gnosticism that, that locates truth in stories and narratives of the oppressed, but the stories and narratives of the oppressed have to be told from the perspective of oppression. Because if they are not, then they are being told from the perspective of the oppressor and they are actually upholding and reinforcing that oppression. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it's, it's, it's complete circular reasoning. It's nonsensical and it gets us nowhere. Um, and Christians have either imbibed it and or um, they are trying to ignore it but they're using the terminology that comes out of it. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that there is a lot of, um, there's a lot of white guilt that I think perpetuates or encourages particularly white evangelicals to embrace this kind of stuff for the exact reasons that you articulated. I have sincerely Jesus-loving friends who, after George Floyd uh, was killed, started out of nowhere, it seemed like to me, regurgitating these kind of white privilege, white guilt talking points when we hadn't even figured out whether or not this was actually a, a a racist uh, murder or a racist killing of a man. It was all of a sudden, like it was just automatic, uh, an automatic regurgitation and reaction because of this guilt that they have been convinced that they collectively 
bear and that they have to agree with the narrative or else, like you said, they're just proving their white supremacy. And you can't talk about data. You can't talk about truth because that's just proving that you're on the side of the oppressor. No Christian wants to be on the side of the oppressor because we hear Jesus came for the oppressed. And so like, what do you do? What what does someone like me do to my Jesus loving friends who seem to be motivated by this white guilt and are just regurgitating things that simply aren't true and are not biblical because they want to come across as loving. Yeah. Well, you know, I've, I've been talking about just these, 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 these five things. One, we have to expose and oppose critical theory and, and, and all of these ideologies. We've we've got to expose this and we've got to oppose it. We just we we have to have that as our starting point, right? Um, you know, a, another thing that we need to do is we need to make sure that we keep law and gospel in order. Um, one of the things about this new religion, <laughs> uh, this wokeness, um, is that it is very legalistic. Um, it, it's uh, you know. You have to do the work of anti-racism. That's how you do this. There is no forgiveness. You have to do the work of anti-racism. You have to do it till you die. And we don't always know what that means, by the way. It's always do the work and do better. But what does that mean? Yes. And it's and, and there's never solutions, right? Mm-hmm. There's never solutions. I think a third thing is we need to have a mature and realistic understanding of our history. And, and, and what I mean by that is th- there's, there's a couple of ways to have an immature understanding of our history. One is that childish understanding. You know, uh, my kids, I, I love to hear the older kids and the younger kids um, debate about me, you know. <laughs> and it's, things will happen like, you know, one of my younger sons the other day was saying how I could pick up the car. And the older son was like, no, nah, Dad's strong, but he can't pick up the car. And the younger yeah. one is like, of course he could, you know. But that's that's being naive and immature. They think, you know, that I can do no wrong, and they think that I can, you know, I'm a superhero. And I and there are some people who think about America like that, and they're absolutely wrong. But then on the other side, there's the 1619 project, right? Exactly. Which, which has the the opposite of that, which is our parents can do no right. You know, right. everything about America is racism and white supremacy, and you know, um, and 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 nothing else is to be understood about America unless it's understood through that lens. Well, mm-hmm. I you know I, I think we, we have to have a a, a mature uh, view of mm-hmm. of who we are, um, and I I think also we need to make sure that we are fighting demons and not chasing ghosts. Mm. And what I mean by that is, you know, when you ask people, people say, well, you know, structural racism, obviously. And I just go, okay, what is structural racism? Right. And generally they'll eventually get around to two things. One, a narrative, right? And it'll go something like slavery, Jim Crow, segregation, um, you know, mass incarceration, redlining, um, you know, and all the disparities of today are the result of all of those things. And because those things cause the disparities, all of these disparities are de facto uh, evidence of systemic racism. Right. Which, right. again, critical theory. Anytime mm-hmm. you see disparities, the answer for the disparity is, you know, systemic oppression. Discrimination, um, right. Yes, discrimination. And so the, the problem with that is when you see these videos, the, the really popular one that went, went around a while ago was, you know, the, the Bob the Tomato guy. Um, yes. I can't remember his name. You Phil know, he's Vesh, just, Vesh, yeah, 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 yeah. Here it is. Boom, 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 boom. And then he does what everybody does. You know, he takes this, you know, this selective tour through history. And, and then he says, I don't know what the solutions are. Exactly. Well, why don't we have solutions? Well, because we're chasing ghosts. Mm-hmm. We're, we're, we're talking about, you know, things that theoretically um, manifest themselves in these ways. That, and we won't even allow for other p- potential explanations, which right. means we also don't allow for things that could, could be, could, that, that could alleviate some of these things, right? 
And so that's what I'll refer to when I say chasing ghosts, because you, you got to do the work of anti-racism. Well, what is it? I don't know. A black person will tell you, you know, um, but no, no, no. But I you think also we... hear at the same time, if you ask a black person, especially someone who is on the left side, well, black people shouldn't have to educate you. There are plenty right. of resources out there we That's hear. Right. And so That's right. what is it? Right. Oh, do we need That's black people right. or should we not? Right. Exactly. But, but so when I talk about, you know, fighting demons, you know, I'm talking about things that we know that we are, that are out there that we can see. For example, you know, racism is, is very real. And one of the things that we're not talking about is the Darwinian evolutionary paradigm yes. that gives rise to modern racism. Yes. I've been thinking about that a lot recently. I'm glad you brought that up. This idea that black people and white people, that the different races are different because they've evolved from different primates, right? Black people evolved from the stronger, less intellectual apes and white people from the, the, the weaker, you know, more intellectual chimpanzees and so forth. And this explains the differences between it. Well, th that, that's racism, right? Right. And right. so on one hand, we're upholding this evolutionary mindset that really dogmatized racism again there was there was the idea of racism before you know darwin sort of codified these 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 ideas and by the way he wasn't the first one to think in these terms but as far as the modern expression that's the way that we think well we need to attack that head on um and so then you get to things like eugenics and the eugenics movement and, and, you know, black people making up 13% of the population, but, you know, you know, more than 30% of the abortions, you know, in, in, in black urban areas, more black babies are aborted than born. You know, that's real. Um, the people who are fighting against school choice, who, by the way, happen to be teachers unions, mm -hmm. right, who want to mm -hmm. keep black students trapped in underperforming schools. Yeah. And so... The answer is not throwing money at them because we look at schools like the New Jersey school system. There's an yep. excellent documentary called Waiting for Superman, right? And everybody's like, what's wrong with our schools? They, they started off that way. What's wrong with our schools? More money, more money, more money. And then they show these people how much per student is being spent. And immediately these people start going, okay, well, what are they doing with all this money? Right. Because yep. it's absolutely ridiculous. And then charter schools are outperforming public schools, which is why the LA Unified School District, right? Yep. They're now saying that they want to, to end all funding for charter schools before they'll come back. By the way, they also want to defund the police, which is a whole nother um, altogether because, <laughs> you know, education and defunding the police. Yeah. And so, you know, so one of the things, one of the things that I've been involved in for a long time is promoting the idea of home education because the National Home Education Research Institute, um, you know, their, their research, and I so appreciate the work that they've done, is demonstrating that home education is one of the ways that the achievement gap is bridged exactly. between black and white students, right? And so promoting things like home education and things like, you know, vouchers and things like this, um, police reform. By the way, there's a huge difference between police reform and defunding the police. What's yeah. the difference? It's worldview. See, critical mm. theory... Critical theory sees the police as enforcers of hegemony. Yep. As so the oppressor. If, yes. So if the police are enforcers of hegemony, well, that's why you talk to a black police officer disrespectfully if you're a young white girl, because it's not a black person. It's the police. It's the mm -hmm. hegemony, right? And so if the police are you know, a, a, a necessary structure and things like this, well, then we, ref we reform policing. But if the police are part of the hegemony, you don't reform it, you defund it. Yes. So this language itself speaks to where these people are coming from. And the that is, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, the language of defunding the police is the language of revolution. And right. by the way, when you accept critical theory, the ultimate end is revolution. And the reason everybody wants to say, hey, I don't know what the solutions are, is not because they don't know what the solutions are. It's because they don't want to admit it. Because the, this, the, the solution is overthrow the hegemony. The solution is revolution. And, but you can't say that, right? Right. Um, yeah, and so anyway. And that worldview also takes away 
moral responsibility from the oppressed. All of the responsibility for what ails the world is put on the so-called oppressor. And so if someone brings up, for example, um, homicide in these uh, inner cities that is typically happening between black young men, they don't want to talk about that because the they are part of an oppressed class. And because they are part of the oppressed class, it is actually the fault of the oppressor whom they would say, um, are the police officers that are causing that violence to happen. So I think that's why you hear a lot of them say, okay, well, if we don't have the police officers anymore, then you won't have that stru- that structure of oppression, and then crime will actually go down. I heard a representative say the other day that if we defunded the police in these local cities, it would just look like the suburbs, just all of a sudden. But like you said, that is a worldview. When you yeah, believe because that one police- of the big things about over-police, yeah. Yeah. Yes, it is. It is. It is. It is. It is a. It is a worldview. Um, it. It. It is a worldview. And so, yeah. you know, but my thing is, the, the the ironic aspect of this is that, as you just pointed out, critical theory puts us on the track on the track of chasing ghosts, mm-hmm. um, while they work toward revolution and overthrow. And takes us away from the track of actually putting our hands on things that are real and mm-hmm. dealing with things, you know, um, th- that are real. Um, and it's interesting, you know, again, so I'm a martial artist um, and I, I practice Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. And I've been training in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu since 2012, competing in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu since 2012. Mm-hmm. And um, a lot of police officers are trained in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Now, the reason that they're trained in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is because unlike other martial arts, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is about subduing an opponent with the minimum am- amount of force necessary. Right. So whereas other arts are about you know hitting somebody as hard as you can or kicking them as hard as you can, uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is about using various forms of control to subdue an an opponent with the the least amount of force necessary. And so one of the things that people are talking about, and this is just one example, right, uh, of of where you you sort of get off the rails, is they talk about chokeholds, right? And, you know, people hear chokeholds and they think, you know, when you're choking somebody, you're trying to kill them. Um, And actually, um, chokeholds uh, save lives. Uh, it sounds crazy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, we use chokeholds all the time. I teach people how to employ chokeholds. I use them, you know, when we're grappling. I use them in competition, um, and and it it is it is a way to subdue a bigger, stronger opponent in a matter of seconds. Um, and and very rarely are there complications again because you're especially there because you're not windpipe chokes. You're not cutting off people's breathing. But they're, you know, artery chokes where you're, you know, cutting off blood supply and people will go out in a matter of seconds and they can then be handcuffed, you know, put in a car or whatever. Now, the problem, however, is that the police get very little training in going hand to hand and in using things like Brazilian jiu-jitsu. So here's the great irony. One of the things that I've been involved in since 2012 is training with police officers who are being trained in Brazilian jiu-jitsu so that they can, you know, use these things and use them very effectively. And the answer is for police officers to have more training, not less. Because here's the deal. If somebody my size, and I'm trained in martial arts, if a police officer goes hands-on with me, I have better training than he does. And... I will probably end up in a better situation. We saw this in Atlanta where two police officers couldn't handle, you know, this, this, right. this, this, uh, you, you know, uh, Richard Brooks, Richard Brooks. Right. And so he, he ends up, you know, overpowering them, taking their weapon and he ends mm-hmm. up getting shot. But here's the thing. If police officers are going to take a guy like, like me, you know, my size with my kind of training and they're going to go hands on with me and I'm not going to go willingly. Well, they're either going to have to, if they can't choke me, they're going to have to beat me into submission. And of course, that film will be all over the place and my family will get millions. Or they're going to have to tase me, which they tried to do with Richard Brooks. And that didn't work out so well. 
or they're going to have to shoot me. I would much rather these guys be trained properly in the use of, you know, these, these restraints and, 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 and methodologies. But instead of doing that, we're just going, nope, we're outlawing this. And actually we're ironically putting people in more danger um, by these sort of things not happening. So that's just kind of one example of what I'm talking about when I say, you know, there's this narrative here and we, you know, go down the road of this narrative and think that we're working towards solutions and think mm-hmm. that anybody on the other side of this, right, is somebody who's just, you know, trying to, you know, increase oppression or whatever um, when, when, when nothing can be further from the truth. And unfortunately, this is Republicans and Democrats kind of fail in this arena that we only pay attention to the inner cities when we're kind of talking about them only almost as political pawns as a way to either indict the Democrats that are over these cities or Democrats saying that we're having guns flood in from the red states and different things like that. And it's really unfortunate. And as we are unwilling and unable to have these productive conversations like you were just talking about of solutions, there are unfortunately people suffering. Uh, there are police officers suffering. There are these inner cities suffering. And so um, critical theory and the worldview that it that it brings has disastrous and very tangible effects, especially on vulnerable communities. So um, I appreciate you bringing that up. Could you, I know that we have to let you go. Could you do me just one favor but before we leave? Uh, there are people who are listening to this while most people who listen to this podcast are already Christians and they are seeking to Um, strengthen their biblical worldview. There may be people who are listening to this who do not know the gospel. Could you just briefly share the gospel to those people who maybe haven't heard it before? Yeah. You know, it's great. We've been talking about this worldview and how this worldview, you know, sees what's wrong with the world and critical theory sees oppressors and oppressed. And the Bible has a worldview as well. And we talked about that meta narrative, creation, fall, redemption, consummation. There's a God who created the world and he created this perfect world. Um, But then there was a fall. Uh, Our forefather, Adam, fell into sin. And all of us are guilty because of Adam's sin. He was our federal head, our representative, if you will. And that brings not only guilt, but it also gives us a sin nature. And we are selfish and we desire our own way and we are opposed to God and opposed to all things that remind us of God and our God is holy and he is just and he must and he will punish sin and we all know that which is why one of the first things that we learn how to say is that's not fair right we want justice we crave justice and that's because the God who created us is a just God but justice demands that we pay for our sin And that payment for our sin is separation from God and separation, not only through death, but eternal separation in hell. But again, creation, fall, redemption. Where does that redemption come from? Even when the fall happens, God says, as the curse comes down upon the serpent, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He'll, he'll bruise his heel, but he'll, he'll bruise your head. And so Christ, The God-man, God wraps himself in flesh. He not only takes on our humanity, but he takes on our guilt. He dies a vicarious, substitutionary, atoning death on the cross. He dies a death that he doesn't owe in order to atone and pay a debt that we owe but can't pay. And because of that, as Paul says in Romans, God is able to be just because he punishes sin in Jesus and the justifier of the one who places faith in Jesus. And so we come to Christ our substitute, acknowledging our need for him, repenting of our sin, turning to Christ and his finished work, and God grants to us the righteousness that belongs to Christ and places upon him the sinfulness that is ours. That's creation, fall, there's redemption, and then consummation. Listen, our hope is not in doing the work of anti-racism. Our hope is in the age to come. God will restore everything that is broken. And we have a promise of that in his word, a guarantee of that because of the person and finished work of Jesus Christ, who will return again and set all things right. And in the meantime, our prayer is 
thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so we are interested in these issues and we do pursue these things, not because we're looking for heaven on earth or believe we can create heaven on earth, but because we have a yearning in us for that which is broken to be repaired. And Christ will come again and do that, beginning with the individual who comes to him through faith in his person and work. Thank you so much. Amen. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me today uh, amidst your busy schedule. People can find you online, votibacham.com. Is that correct? Dot org. Dot org. Okay. Yeah. And if they have okay, a hard awesome. time with that, just put Vodi, V-O-D-D-I-E, and you will find me. Yes, there aren't very many who, who share your name. Uh, well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you joining us today. It's my pleasure. Thank you. So I just wanted to add a, a little closer to this episode because I, I wanted to go a tiny bit deeper on uh, what we were talking about when I brought up sincere Jesus-loving people, particularly women regurgitating uh, these critical theory talking points and uh, regurgitating things about white guilt and white privilege and doing the work of anti-racism, not realizing that they are borrowing from an anti-biblical worldview. And if you need to know more about that, go listen to my interview with Neil Shinvey. We talked about critical theory, what it is, what all of these terms that we talked about today really mean and how they are so damaging to biblical theology. Go back and listen to that conversation. It's going to blow your mind if you haven't listened to it. If you have listened to it, go Go back and listen to it again and take notes. It is so important to understand what critical theory is and why it is simply incongruent with biblical theology. And look, to the Christian women out there who have been reading things like white fragility and trying to apply it to their lives, who have been told that in order to be a good Christian, you have to, quote, do the work of anti-racism and you have to talk about so-called systemic racism and you have to look at every discrimination or every disparity that exists between uh, different ethnic groups and different socioeconomic classes and ascribe those disparities to discrimination and racism. I would just highly encourage you to take a step back and to look at the worldview that you are propagating and realize that it is not a biblical worldview. You can listen to um, more videos and sermons by Dr. Vodi Bakum. You can go to shinviapologetics.com. My friend Samuel Say has a really good blog with resources and book reviews that talk about all of this. My friend Neil Shinvi at shinviapologetics.com. He has reviews on Color of Compromise, on Be the Bridge, on White Fragility, on White Awake, all of these books that are being encouraged and are being uh, promoted by the church right now, they at least deserve a second look from a biblical perspective. And let me just tell you, if you are a Christian who has bought into the idea that you have to uh, push the social justice narratives in order to be loving, in order to be kind, in order to be on the side of justice and mercy, I just want you to know that you have been duped. You've been duped. All the answers that we need for what justice looks like, for what mercy looks like, for what love looks like, for what uh, treating people as equal image bearers of God looks like, it can all be found in scripture. We don't have to borrow from critical theory in order to be lovers of justice. In fact, we have to go into God's word to tell us what justice actually looks like. We have to go into the word of God to tell us what love and treating people equally and well and respectfully actually looks like. We don't need to borrow from secular ideologies in order to be better Christians. That's ridiculous. And even if you have so-called Christians, professing Christians, perpetuating this kind of ideology that doesn't mean that it's Christ-like. It doesn't mean that it's right. And so I would just encourage you to take a step back and to examine some of the things that you have not just read, but you've internalized and then regurgitated in the name of justice and mercy and weigh them against what the word of God says. And I just pray for me, for you, for all of us to be discerning to be as wise as we possibly can and to realize that the gospel is not only uh, enough, it is the only thing that is enough. And that doesn't mean that we don't also, uh, that we don't also obey God in our lives. That doesn't mean that we don't also pursue just policies. That doesn't mean that we don't care about justice and injustice. Of course, 
We do. And yes, sure, there is work associated with that and making sure that you are um, trying to vote for a government that represents, uh, that is representative of um, of real equity and real justice. And so a government that is not discriminating against the rich, a government that is not discriminating against the poor, a government that is not discriminating against white or black, of course, that is something that we all want while still realizing that societies don't change without changed hearts and hearts don't change without the gospel of Jesus Christ and critical theory with the worldview that says everyone is the oppressed versus the oppressor and every disparity between those two groups is based on oppression and discrimination and racism. It is incongruent with a biblical view and a biblical definition of justice. And plus, it's just not accurate. And that's another thing that I want to say really quickly. So unfortunately, I have gotten into contentious conversations with Christian friends in bringing up data that we talked about today that uh, questioning the narrative uh, that says that black people are being hunted by white people are being hunted by white police officers, that the fatherlessness rate, the abortion rate in the black community, it's all due to systemic racism. If you push back on that, even citing so-called black voices like Thomas Sowell, like John McWhorter, like Jason Riley, like Vody Bauckham, uh, you get uh, you get lambasted and you get accused of not being sufficiently empathetic. You get accused of not being sufficiently compassionate because we are just supposed to listen and agree to uh, people, you know, Black Lives Matter activists, for example, without saying, hey, that's actually not factually true. The data doesn't actually back that up. And actually, the biggest takers of black lives are abortion and black on black crime in these inner city communities. If you say that, that is considered racist. That is considered not compassionate. Well, I I would just... Um, caution you from taking on that mentality and for um, I would caution you from buying into the lie that says that you just have to nod in agreement when someone says that their experience um, equates to uh, equates to national data or when an experience or am, uh, a perspective is absolute truth that applies to the entire American system, I would just caution you from embracing that. It is not lacking compassion to talk about data in a truthful and and loving way. It is not lacking compassion to talk about real solutions like we did today, better training for police officers, school choice, uh, making sure that mothers are are cared for and well-equipped to care for their children and making sure that Planned Parenthood doesn't uh, plant their abortion mills specifically in these poor minority communities to make sure that they are getting as much business as possible from killing these black and minority babies. It is not lacking compassion to push back against that because you see that embracing the narrative that every discrimination or every disparity that exists is due to discrimination or that black people are disproportionately being hunted by white police officers. You see what kind of disarray and what kind of chaos that causes when it's not based on reality. It's just not based on truth and it is not loving to allow someone to react to something that is not based on reality and truth. And like he said about the the VeggieTales video about systemic racism, you point to all of these disparities and you just say that it's due to discrimination without any proof whatsoever. And then you say there's really no solution. You just have to do the work of anti-racism, whatever that may be. And I just don't think these nebulous conversations help anyone. I don't think they help anyone. So I encourage you. I've got some homework for you. Read Discrimination and Disparities by Thomas Sowell. Go listen to more of Odie Bauckham's stuff. Uh, Go uh, read people like John McWhorter. Listen to people like Glenn Lowry, Coleman Hughes. Those are not conservatives, by the way, but they have a very nuanced perspective on things like systemic racism. And allow yourself to be challenged. I allow myself to be challenged reading Color of Compromise and and, uh, Wide Awake and other books that... You know, who's the the authors I don't necessarily agree with politically, but I am able to take in some of the things that they say that I think are productive and then realize that some of the worldview that they are perpetuating simply isn't a biblical worldview. And so I will never discourage you from reading things critically like that, but just make sure that we 
are imbibing information critically from all sides and allowing ourselves to be challenged by truth and by fact, not just by one person's experience or perspective, but by truth and data and facts, and most importantly, challenged and shaped and honed by the gospel of Jesus Christ and uh, by the word of God, which is supposed to shape our worldview. So I just wanted to end on that. And I wanted to challenge you specifically, those of you who are listening to this, who disagree with me on everything that I say, to widen your perspective. Dare I say, listen to black voices is what we're always told, but maybe listen to those that are outside of your ideological camp and um, it, just just allow yourself to be honed and to be shaped in that way. And um, I think it is it would be much better if we were able to have conversations uh, from uh, between the disagreeing sides that don't erupt in accusations, blanket accusations and empty accusations of racism simply because someone has a pushback. Okay, that's all I have to say. I hope that you guys have a great day and a great weekend and I will see you back here on Monday. We will be talking about next week. We'll be talking about the end times with Jeff Durbin and I'm so excited about it. So I will see you guys then. 